you know, really wanting to live life more on her terms. You know, there's all these things that we do that we kind of think we have to do and we're not quite in control of our lives yet. And she said, I just want to live life on more on my own terms. And then this third person I was with said, you know, the truth is we are always living life on our own terms. The terms may just be that we're saying yes to everyone else and everything else to avoid the discomfort of saying no, we're saying what we really want. Hello and hola friends. Welcome to the Medicine, Marriage, and Money podcast, the only podcast for dual physician couples who want to achieve marital interdependence and financial freedom together. In this podcast, you will learn how to show up as the best version of yourself so that you can love intentionally and build a stronger and more financially savvy relationship with your spouse. And I am your host, a physician mom, a doctor's wife, and a life coach, Dr. Kate Mangona. Welcome, bienvenidos. Hola, friends. Please welcome our guest on today's episode of Medicine, Marriage, and Money. We are here with Dr. Devin Gimbel, a board-certified anatomic pathologist and dermatopathologist, as well as a physician life coach who helps high-achieving women physicians. Devin is a mother of two brave children and a loving and supportive wife to an adult psychiatrist and a social media cheerleader, which is how I found her. Hi, it's so great to be here with you. So my first question for you, and I'm um, doing an uh, inaugural podcast launch, so I'm asking the same question to everybody. What is your definition of marital interdependence and what does it take to achieve it and maintain it? Or in other words, what makes a successful marriage and how does it last? I think that's such a great question. I kind of wish that I had had that question beforehand so I could have come up with a really good answer just so everyone knows I'm totally on the spot here. So I think honestly, just to give you a little bit of a background, I have been married now for a long time. I was actually just thinking about this this morning. So my husband and I were actually classmates in medical school. So we've been together from our very first month of med school, which now is almost 16 years we've actually been married for 12 years. So that makes me feel like I'm much older than I am. I feel like my entire adult life has essentially been as part of this couple, but it's in some ways, I think really beautiful because my definition, I think of what makes a successful you know, couple or relationship or marriage, I think has definitely changed over that time. And so I won't bore you with the details of the entire timeline of that definition. I'll just say that now, where we are, having been together for 16 years, having two children, I actually have a definition now of a successful marriage of being one in which two people are both there totally willingly and expect honestly nothing of the other person than that they're just there to be loved. And that's actually very different than what my definition of you know a relationship or even marriage was when I was 20 years old or 25 years old or even 30 years old. That I really think that as I've grown and matured and as our relationship has grown and matured, we have found our best place when we really expect of one another that they're there just to have their company enjoyed and to be loved by the other person. I love that. That's perfect. That reminds me of Brooke Castillo and what she teaches. I mean, that's when I heard that I heard that first like about a year ago. It it didn't really hit me or dawn on me. But then recently when I have been actively working on my marriage, I was just like, wait, let's let's think about that again. They're just there to be for me to love them. So get rid of the manual, get rid of the expectations and show up how I want to show up, right? And yeah. And it's such a simple concept, right? And it broke my brain as well. So that's exactly kind of where I have, <laughs> where I was introduced to this now current sort of iteration that I have of, you know, my marriage and my relationship. And I think back, like I said to, you know, when my husband and I met, I was 23. So I'm the older woman. He's a year younger than me. Cause I took off some time in between undergrad and medical school and he went straight through. So we were first year classmates together, but I'm approximately 11 months older than he is. And so, you know, in our 20s, when we first met each other, I think I very much looked at relationships as, and a partner's almost like an emo emotional vending machine, <laughs> you know, like that person is there to like shower me with love and attention and affection. And it feels, of course, amazing when you get that. And I think that the early stages of relationships can often be characterized by that type 
of experience, right? And if you stay together and as your relationship evolves, you grow as you know adult people, you introduce little children and people into your family, you may not always serve those same roles for one another. And so, yeah, that concept that I, of course, take no credit for coming up with, I also heard it from Brooke Castillo, but really trying to incorporate that into my life, I have seen really how much stronger that has made our relationship, especially when I, yes, dropped sort of my expectations of my husband, especially to read my mind, especially once you get to that 10, 15 year mark in your relationship, you're like, why can't you just always know exactly what I'm thinking, what I want and then give it to me? You know, I figure at this point, my husband who's a board certified psychiatrist, if he can't read my mind, nobody can read my mind. So maybe I should just stop expecting that. And like I said, just showing up and loving him for the amazing person he is. I love that. I love that so much. And you said you met him. Okay. So you met him the first week in medical school. Yes. And um, so tell me about that moment or week. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I'm not sure it's an entirely romantic story, but I, and I actually hadn't thought about this like literally for years. And then I, I started thinking about this in preparation for our conversation today. So I will preface this by saying that, like I said, I actually took off two years in between undergrad and med school. And during that time, I did a lot of living and working internationally, which was just an amazing experience for me. So I lived and traveled in Southeast Asia for about six months. I did some infectious disease research with um, a lab out of UC San Diego that was actually based in the Amazon region in Peru. So I was like living in Peru and doing research literally up until essentially right when I started med school. And so I came into medical school feeling like totally just courageous and brave and ready to like take on anything, you know, and I was so excited to go through this process and to be a doctor and all this stuff. And I came in so completely focused and dedicated on just being in med school and studying. So I came in literally saying, I'm so glad I don't have to worry about dating anybody. Like I'm not here, <laughs> you know, to like find a relationship or to even be distracted by that. So that was my mindset coming into medical school. And then you know, we had a class of, I think around a hundred people. And as the first year med school is, I mean, you literally spend all day, every day in a big lecture hall with these same people. Right. So, you know, you kind of get a sense of who's in the room and stuff. And I had sort of a pocket of people I was hanging out with. And so I knew my husband was my classmate, but I hadn't really talked to him. Didn't really care all that much about it. I had like my little group of people that seemed really interesting. And I remember it was like the second week of med school and I was sitting talking with my friends and laughing with them during one of the breaks in between lectures. And he was sitting a couple rows behind us and kept like interjecting. And I was like, who is this guy? Right. I'm like, why won't he leave us alone basically? And I was talking with some of my friends. We were talking about um, like travel and international work that we had done. And I talked about how in undergrad, I actually spent a summer living in Kenya and volunteering there. And so I was talking about this with my friends. And so then after the lecture, we're standing in the hallway you know, of our medical school, me and my friends talking and my husband comes up to us and he was like, Hey, I heard you talking about the time that you lived in Kenya. He's like, oh, I lived in the same place. Oh my God. And I'm like, You've got to be kidding me. Cause I, it, I was not working and, and volunteering in like Nairobi, like a huge city. I was literally in this like middle of nowhere town in rural Kenya. And I was like, are you serious? Like, this is so bizarre. And he's like, yeah. And this, and this, and this. And Literally for like two or three minutes, he was like, no, I just made that up. Like, I've never been there. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And I was so irritated. I was like, what is wrong with this person? You know, I was like such a turnoff. That I was like, what is wrong with you? You know, I was like, okay, bye. You know, so that was really our first introduction where I knew he was in my class. And then the first time he talked to me, I was like, I don't have anything to do with this guy. Right. Then honestly, over the next like week or so, his kind of friend group and my friend group did spend a lot of time together. So I was around him a bit more and I actually started listening to him a little bit. And I thought, okay, this guy's pretty funny and he seems like a pretty nice guy, but that's fine. I have no interest in dating anyone. This is not a big deal. And we were studying for biochem, which was our first you know, big test of that, of that year. And we'd spent a lot of time in the same study rooms together. And so we were starting to spend time and talking and Finally, like another two weeks goes by and, and we were talking about all these other couples in our class that had coupled up. And I went on this big tirade about how that was like the worst idea ever. Like the stupidest thing you could ever do is date a med school classmate because if it goes wrong, 
you're stuck with this person, right? In your class for us, it was two years that you were with this class all the time. And I'm like, these people, they have no idea what they're doing. This is going to blow up in their face. You know, I was like going on and on. And literally after like 20 minutes of my talking about this, he looks at me and he goes, yeah, I really think that we should go out. <laughs> right. And again, I'm like, you're not listening to anything I say. Like, what is wrong with this person? You know? <laughs> and I would, he's persistent. And I have to say, he, as I came to find out, you know, after we did finally start spending time together, I realized that the only person more stubborn on earth than me is actually my husband. So this is very indicative, you know, of, of kind of how that all came to pass. And so, you know, at this point, I'm like, God, I don't know what is wrong with this guy. Like, he's clearly not listening to me. But we were spending so much time together, you know, because we're just in the same class. We're all studying at the same time. And I did really think he was a great guy. But I still had this sense that, like, I'm not here to date. You know, I'm, I'm here to be really serious about getting my degree and, you know, really setting myself up for success professionally. And I have to say, it was like that whole first month where we were hanging out, we would have these conversations. I remember it was actually the night before our biochem test. So of course we were studying in the study room and we'd gone into our medical school like lecture hall where no one was at that point to take a break. So we wouldn't bother the people who were in the study room and we were just sitting next to each other talking. And he was again, sort of bringing up like, Hey, we should really go out. I know you think this is probably the worst idea ever, you know, yada, yada, yada. And I just remember the thing that he said to me at that point that finally is what broke my will to resist any longer. And he said, listen, he goes, I don't always say the right thing, but I always do the right thing. And I just remember thinking, you know, this guy seems really great. You know, he's clearly persistent. Like <laughs> maybe this isn't the worst idea ever. And so I was kind of like, okay, fine. I give up, you know, it's been a month. I'm not going to keep saying like, no, and avoiding you. And we've been together ever since. And I really have to say, you know, I have come back to that moment in several times throughout our, our life together and our marriage. And I think the re really the fundamental reason why we are as strong as we are is because he was totally telling the truth. I mean, like he really does do the right thing all the time. And um, it, it really just couldn't, it couldn't have ended up any better. And I'm glad that I believed him at that point. Cause I was very resistant to him for a very long time. <laughs> Uh -huh. Oh my gosh. Well, I love that. Oh, persistence. And I mean, yeah, doing the right thing. I mean, actions definitely speak louder than words, especially in this scenario, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, ever since that month, which is now like 16, you know, years ago, I mean, he really has been out of everyone in my life, like my biggest, my most tireless supporter, you know, he's always been behind me. I think there are a lot of ways that I'm not terribly traditional or conventional. And I think, you know, a lot of guys may have not liked that or been threatened by that. And, um, you know, he has always been the one who's been standing like right there beside me the whole way. So I am, I am really incredibly and truly grateful for him. Wow. Okay. So what, what is it do you think that he made you guys fall in love? What, what qualities besides this persistence? <laughs> just, just the stubbornness. <laughs> yeah. You know, I have to say that, he really has an incredible sense of humor. Um, we laugh together all the time. Like nobody can make me laugh as much as he can. And he's the only person in the world whose company I honestly never get bored of and I never get tired of. And, and I'm actually very introverted. Um, I am very, very happy being by myself a lot of the time. And even though I have friends and family who I adore, I really need a lot of time away from people just for kind of my own you know, mental and emotional health. And he is really the only person who I never get tired of. And even if we're just sitting in the same room together, but not, you know, interacting or not talking, we're both just reading, he's the person whose company I just love to have all the time. And so I think that that's something that has really kind of held us together is that we just appreciate each other's company, but without necessarily needing the other one to constantly like entertain us <laughs> or keep us busy. No, that's such, that is, that's very special. I think that's something very special. Cause like, I mean, like you, I consider myself an introvert as well. And, um, in all my past relationships, I actually resented hanging out with the other, it was just didn't make even any sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's like, it feel draining. <laughs> and then, and then I like, you meet the right person. You're like, wait a second. I want to hang out with them. Like all the time. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's very confusing, but, but 
<laughs> great. <laughs> yeah. And I think honestly, the fact that we met when we did meet, you know, our first month of medical school, where really the first two years of our relationship, we did hang out all the time. I and mean, we had all the same classes. You know, we took tests at the same time. We didn't live together at that point, but we were spending basically all of our waking hours, like in my apartment or his apartment, you know? And so we really did spend almost all of our time together the first two years we were together. And I remember when we went into the clinical rotations of our third year, it was really jarring for both of us in the beginning because it was the first time we'd actually been like physically separated, you know, for days at a time from, from when we'd begun, you know, our relationship. And that was a big shift for us to go from really liking to be around each other 24 hours a day and being able to, to then, you know, having to live real life and then go through the next stages of our medical careers where we didn't have, you know, that physical proximity all the time. Right. So how did you, I mean, how did you transition with that? Um, like in, even today, you're probably not with each other all the time. How, what, what are the systems you've had in place? How have you made that tradition to maintain this successful marriage between two physicians? Yeah, you know, I think the point at which that was actually the most difficult for us was our first year of residency because, you know, in medical school, even the third and fourth year, we still did spend a ton of time together. We moved in together our third year of medical school. So at least when we weren't on call, we were still home with each other, you know, in the mornings and the evenings. So it's like you have this touch point where you're still at least in contact, you know, with the person on a regular basis. And when we went to residency, so we moved cities and we actually trained in different hospitals. So we weren't even in the same hospital system anymore, which for us then was, you know, a big change from even what we'd been in medical school. We were still in the same hospital. So now we're in a different city. We're in very different hospitals and our schedules were so different. Um, I remember for him, he had a couple of months, his intern year where he was essentially on like a night float, you know, type of, you know, of schedule where he would be gone, you know, from five or 6 PM in the evening and he wouldn't get home until nine or 10 o'clock in the morning. And my schedule where since I'm a pathology, you know, I was a pathology resident where we took call, but it wasn't overnight in hospital call, but we had really long days. And so my days in the hospital would go from like 6am to like 10pm. So we would go when he was on night call, you know, night float. I remember we would literally not see each other for that entire rotation because of the way our schedules were. So that was a huge challenge for us to, to be living with someone. It was our first year, you know, residency and all the challenges that come with that. And then we had gotten married two months before we started residency. So we're like a newly married couple, even though we'd been together for four years. <laughs> and it was like, we were just ships passing in the night. Like I knew he had been home at some point because there was evidence of him having been there, but like he wasn't there when I was there. And that was a huge challenge for us. And I think what we realized at that point was that we really needed to figure out what made sense for us in terms of what we really needed, not so much from the other person, but how do we build in this time where we can't actually see each other around our schedules that we don't have a lot of control over? And I think that since that was probably the most stressful period, you know, of, of our schedule as far as our lives together so far was that whole first year, you know, of internship and residency. I think we learned a lot of tools during that time about, okay, how do we make it a priority so that we can find each other at some points, you know, like, are there times during the day that we actually can call one another or even with this weird flip-flopping schedule, can we find like 10 minutes of the day where we can be in the same place at the same time, just give each other a hug, you know, because you really miss that when you go a month of not like seeing your partner. And I think it just really helped us learn how to be more communicative with one another. Cause I think the downside of being in a place where we were our first years of a relationship where we were physically around each other 24 hours a day. So we didn't have to communicate a lot of our needs to one another because we were always together. And so having that sort of imposed separation, you know, from our residencies, it really required us to develop different communication skills with one another. Got it. And so you found the time, like, did you write, did you write that 10 or 30 minutes on your schedule so you guys would know or just, you know, have a routine, a daily thing or a weekly thing? Yeah, I think we just became much more intentional about looking, you know, at our actual schedules, like, where are you going to be for the next two weeks? And where am I going to be? And how can we make sure that at least like once every couple days, we actually find each other? And of course, you know, other rotations, it was a lot easier, you know, especially for him being a psychiatry resident, his intern year 
was the most demanding in terms of his schedule. And then it got a lot more manageable for him. My schedule kind of stayed the same over my entire residency, which was just incredibly long days. And so at least once we started comparing our schedules, we could see, okay, how can we just work around this to make sure, you know, like I said, that we can actually find the times that we don't physically have to be in the hospital where we can meet up with one another. We can find each other for dinner, you know, at a restaurant in between where our two hospitals are located or the nights that he would be on call, he might have an hour in between when his actual day ended and his call started. You know, I'd grow, go across town and just hang out with him, you know, in his hospital where he was for that hour and then come back home and do my own thing. So it was just being really deliberate about like, how do we find each other when we actually want to be spending this time with one another? Right. That's perfect. Okay. And then what about during, um, I mean, then you had children, right? You have children and you know, you're grown ups now. What kind of structures or routines do you guys have now? Because that adds a whole nother complexity to, to marriage. Yeah, it totally does. And I will say, you know, we had kids sort of quote unquote late, I guess, compared to how long we'd been together. We, we didn't have our kids until I was about three years out of training. So we went through all of medical school, all of residency with it just being the two of us. And so we didn't have to navigate a lot of those issues that, you know, people who have children in residency, I honestly, I cannot imagine how they do it. I can't imagine anything more difficult or challenging. And I have so much respect for people who do it because I think I probably would have died if if we had tried that. (laughs) So we actually um, spent a year living apart because his training was one year longer than mine. So we were both in in Boston for our training and I finished after four years. And then I moved out to the Midwest where we are now to get my first sort of grown up attending job. So my first year in practice, my husband was still back in Boston doing his fellowship. And so we spent a year, again, we didn't have kids at this point, so it wasn't a huge challenge. So we sent a year apart. And then when he came out to the Midwest, when he was done with his fellowship is when we started kind of talking about okay, do we want to start thinking about, you know, having kids at this point and what would that look like? And so we had our first child when I was three years out of training. And that was, I mean, geez, I think for me, not so much for my husband, he's the maternal one of the two of us. So he like, he had like no transition into parenthood. He was like such a pro. I, of course, I mean, I feel like it took me two years to adjust to actually going from being childless to having a child. And I think that transition was much more difficult for me. And I think what we learned, because when we had our son, I was still working, both of us working very much full time. And I went back um, to my practice six weeks after I had my son. And so I think what we kind of learned really quickly was that we needed reinforcements, that this was not going, parenthood for us while both of us working, you know, full time was not going to be something that we were going to be able to manage perfectly and flawlessly with just the two of us. And so we have been completely open, open and shameless about recruiting as much help as we have needed in these these different stages you know, of our life. And for us, what that looked like was that we have had a nanny who's been with us since my son has been six weeks old. And so she's been with us now you know, for, for over four years. And so she came in and she spent at that time about 50, 55 hours a week with us. And she was really here full time you know, with our son and she would help out you know, with things around the house. And that really made it possible for us to continue working at the level that we had been working at. You know, at that point, my husband was a year into starting his own private practice at that point. So that was taking, you know, a lot of his time and his energy and building up his private practice. And I was working in a very high volume private practice at that time as well. So my days were also very long. And so having that outside help is really what allowed our family to function. And at various times kind of throughout, you know, our life since then, whenever we've needed help, we've brought it in. I mean, we've had at at, at its height (laughs) when we were really reliant on outside help. We had our nanny, we had someone who came and walked our dog every day. We have someone who comes in and helps us clean our house. And like I said, we're really honestly shameless about that because that's what it took for us to be able to feel like our family could run without us driving ourselves completely into the ground. So that when we get got home, we actually had the energy and the desire to spend time with one another and not be frantically trying to figure out, you know, how to just get the groceries in the fridge and get the laundry folded. No, I think this is so important, like for physicians to 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 know and not not take any shame in this. Like we are busy. We have patients demanding, you know, super demanding jobs. The last thing you want to do when you come home is clean your house. You know, uh, make all the food. 
I definitely still take spend time with the kids in the evening too. But knowing somebody is there to take care of them during the day, and if say I'm running late or Victor's running late, having somebody there who may be flexible to stay even a little bit longer. Oh my gosh, that like that's priceless. Yeah, and for us, yeah, it was it was totally the peace of mind of it because you know, again, I'm actually no longer in that practice that I was in. I was, I was in that practice for um, seven years after finishing training. And, you know, when I was there, I was very, it was very important to me that nobody ever questioned whether or not like I was going to be able to come into work that day, you know, or if I was going to call out sick for something. And, you know, I think there's a lot underneath there that, that sort of comes as part of, you know, being a woman physician and sort of the expectations that either are placed on us or that we think are placed on us. But um, for me, you know, it was really important that I be seen within my practice as someone who is entirely dependable and reliable and was always going to show up and get the work done. And for me, having the support that we had in our home is really what gave me the peace of mind to know that I was going to be able to show up and work it, you know, as hard as I had always, you know, intended to work within my practice. Right. And you touched on something there that I want you to expand on because you said what we, the expectations we place on ourselves versus what others, we think others expect as a woman physician. Yeah. Right. Because we think if we take a sick day or if, you know, the kid that we get a call from school or from the, the kid, oh my God, what is everybody going to think? Because I'm a mother too. You know, we don't want to admit that we are a mother, that we have to run a house. How do you, because I know you probably have clients who come to you um, to seek out your coaching to help them with these aspects of your lives. What kind of things and tools do you have you can provide for other people who are struggling? Yeah, I think that's such a great question. And I can answer it from the perspective, you know, of sort of (laughs) my pre-coaching brain. Because, you know, one thing I haven't mentioned is that this private practice that I had joined outside of fellowship, it was a really small physician-owned practice there was about eight physicians when I joined and I was the first and only female physician this group had ever had. And as you can tell, I'm not 70 years old. You know, we're not talking about something that happened, you know, generations and decades ago. And yet I was very cognizant, you know, that, um, that I believed at the time that people were going to be looking at me a certain way being a female physician. And that's, you know, I think the the key thing that I just want to say here is that of course, that's not something anyone in that practice ever said to me, right? And that's, I think, the acknowledgement and the awareness that I have now, that when I walked into this practice, I had a whole set of assumptions about what I thought they were going to think about me or what I thought they were going to expect, you know, from me. And those were never things that were stated or put out on the table. I have to say the people that I worked with were never anything except for generous and gracious and kind to me. But I had this idea because I was the only female physician. Yeah. That, you know, I could never, ever, ever, ever not be there for some child related issue because they would think something about me, which I think is actually not true whatsoever. And the work that then I did first getting coached, you know, and before I became a coach myself, it really helped to reveal to me how much of a lot of my personal hangups about the way that I was showing up in that practice or the things that I was afraid of happening really had to do with just my fears about what other people would think, which just was an indication for me about stuff that I got to clean up on my own. Because the fact of the matter was, like I said, they were never anything except for really wonderful and kind and generous to me. And it was just my own fears about what they might think or they might say that was really getting in my own way. And so to your question of, you know, what do I do when I work with other women physicians is that the work always starts with just understanding, wait a minute, like, what do we think we're so afraid of like, what do we think other people expect of us? Or what do we think other people are going to say about us? And how does that actually compare to anything that's actually happened in reality, right? And separating out, okay, what's happened in reality versus what are all the things that we think are happening or afraid are happening and really learning some tools around managing our minds around the second one, because what's so, what happens to so many of us is that like we operate in these spaces thinking that we know what other people are believing about us and we have no idea. And then we just end up getting ourselves all twisted up in, in our own way, which was certainly true for me. Right. No, exactly. And in the end, it really doesn't even matter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. Let's move on to the finance portion of 
interview because it is called Medicine, Marriage, and Money. Um, let's talk about how you and um, your hubby got on the same page or were you always on the same page? I mean, in regards to spending, saving, investing? No, we were not. You know, I think this is what's always fascinating when two people come together because they come together, obviously, with their own life story, you know, prior to that point. And I totally remember. So my, my backstory is that um, I was raised by a single parent and we had a very, you know, modest upbringing. We were by no means poor, but we essentially had no extras ever. And so I was raised very much aware of like budgeting and making sure that you could stretch, you know, a dollar. I went to medical school on full, you know, loans. And so I knew the whole time I'm like, okay, this is what the cost of my education is going to be. You know, I'm gonna have to pay it back, all that stuff. So my husband was raised in a really different sort of background where money scarcity was not really part, you know, of the conversation for him growing up. And I remember so distinctly, we would, when we started grocery shopping together, so we weren't living together at this point in medical school, but we'd go grocery shopping together, right? Cause we like to spend time together and we go shopping to like target together. And I so distinctly remember, cause I always had my, my list based on my budget, right? I mean, even in med school, I was like living off of loans. And so it's not like you have just endless amounts of money flowing in to buy what you want. So I was very clear like, these are my necessities. This is what they're going to cost. You don't buy it. You're going to have to pay it back. Plus yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. Like my ed school is not funding my Target shopping sprees. Right. And so I remember we were in Target. And so we bought our own stuff, but we shopped, you know, sort of next to each other. And I just so distinctly remember, and this will tell you a lot about my husband. We were going through buying the stuff that we needed. And we were in like, you know, the bathroom cleaning aisle. And he literally took this thing on the, off the shelf. I mean, it must have been like $4, but it was like this toilet cleaning wand, you know? And it was like, this was his impulse buy, okay? <laughs> so he's like, oh my gosh, this looks amazing. And it was literally an impulse buy for him. And I remember in that moment being like, oh my gosh, like I, I don't even know what that feels like to walk through a store and just see something that catches my attention and be like, oh, I'm gonna buy that. And it's no big deal, right? Let's leave out the fact that like why it is that his impulse buy was like a toilet cleaning product and that's something more interesting. But it was really like the first time in our relationship where I was like, oh, wait a minute. Like money doesn't mean the same thing as it does to me, right? Or we just have different ideas about this. And so our money, we kept totally separate the whole time that we were in medical school. So even though we lived together our third and fourth years, we still didn't share money. We split like all of our rent and utilities. And at that time, like groceries, half and half coming from our own you know, bank accounts. So we got married at the very end of our fourth year of medical school. And at that point, we did completely combine our finances, which at that point was still essentially nothing. I mean, I had six figures of med school you know, debt and loans, but our actual assets together were essentially negligible. So I think it made it easy to combine because there was not a whole lot to combine, right? It was basically like the wedding gifts that we got from friends and family that started, you know, like our net worth together. Um, but it really, really behooved us to start having conversations about like, yeah, what, what do we even do with money? Because finally then we're residents, we're actually getting paychecks for the first time. And like I said, I had, you know, medical school loans. And so we had to get on the same page pretty quickly just about, okay, what are just some of our common goals? You know, like, we lived in a very expensive city for residency. And so we had to be really clear about you know, what is our budget, you know, for, for our rent, what are we going to be spending money on? But I have to say the thing that I think worked in our favor is that our ultimate goals really naturally did align. So we did not have a lot of tension or conflict over having really different overall goals. I think we both very much wanted to be mindful of money in the sense of we wanted to be protective of it. We were both really interested, even at that point, in sort of working towards financial independence, seeing money as a tool, you know, that could be used for us. Very early on. Very early on. Yes. And for very different reasons. You know, mine was very much because, again, I had grown up with so much money scarcity and I had huge med school loans that I was like, oh my gosh, let's be really frugal and save so that we can get rid of debt. And then we can have money, which at least in my brain back then meant, oh, then we'll have security. Whereas, you know, my husband's perspective was, oh, when you have money, right, like you have freedom as well. And I and we very much are on the same page and both of us sort of being not anarchists, but we're very interested in our own freedom and autonomy. And to us, money seemed to be the tool, you know, that would give that to us. And so, you know, having the similar end goal from the beginning made it easier for us to then navigate those those conversations about like, OK, what are we actually going to do with our money? And so from very early on, 
we maxed out our Roth 403B accounts in residency because we knew that that was going to be a tool that wasn't going to be available to us, you know, really in that capacity training. Yeah. And then it really became about finding the common financial goals, you know, which for us was pay down the student loans, you know, as quick as possible. I know a lot of people have different ideas about that, but for us, that was a priority, even though I was lucky and I squeaked in, in that generation where my student loans were actually at like 2.8%. So they weren't even at the like eight or 9% that a lot of people's were. And even so that was just a big deal to us to really just eliminate that debt. And so, yeah, we just got on the same page about what do we want our financial future to look like and how do we navigate, you know, from where we are now to where we get there. And we've kind of traded roles over time. He now does a lot of sort of the day to day bill paying and finances and figuring out, just making sure that, you know, like the cable bill is paid and all that stuff. And I actually do a lot more of the high level um, financial stuff for our family. So I manage all of our investments and I talk to him about them. Like we make the goals together and then we kind of separate and take care of the actions, you know, separately. But I manage kind of our higher level. What are our investments? What are we putting into like our kids, you know, educational funds, all that type of stuff. Perfect. Okay. And then what about like spending money? Do you guys like, do you I don't know. What is your, what do you, what is your guilty pleasure? <laughs> yeah. You know, I would say pre COVID my guilty pleasure was 100% travel. That's something that's always been incredibly important to me and not only family travel, but honestly independent solo travel. So pre COVID I would take usually one or two international trips a year, either completely by myself or me with like, I would travel with my mom. Like I would take her to a place that she wanted to go, but wouldn't want to travel on her own or I would travel with my own friends. And so that has always been sort of where my discretionary income has, has been going to. So obviously we're saving a lot of that now because we're all stuck in the house. Right, right. Yeah, <laughs> but- that's, that's amazing. Okay, wait, what were we gonna say? Yeah, and I was gonna say, you know, my husband is really not a spender. Like I kind of have to convince him to find things that he likes. But you know, what we've learned over time is that we're now in a place where we, it's not like it was in residency where we really did have a very strict budget where we, we never felt like we had to sort of give each other permission about spending money. It was more that it was like, okay, if I'm going to spend over X amount, I'm just going to let my partner know, Hey, I'm just going to throw this on the credit card or I'm going to pay for this just so you know, this thing is coming. But we've always really just inherently trusted each other's decision-making. Um, I definitely spend more than he does, but I spend in the context of knowing what our overall financial goals are. So it's never to the extent where like, you know, I come home and he's shocked because I'm pulling into the driveway with like a brand new car. Not that there's anything wrong with that whatsoever, but like, that's just not where, you know, my sort of discretionary spending has come from. Um, and I will, I'll say sort of in that context, something that I learned really early on in my financial education um, that comes from the white coat investor that I really come back to a lot is he has this saying that, you know, as physicians, we're high income earning, you know, professionals, especially as dual, you know, physician families. And he says that you can have anything you want, but maybe just not everything you want. And I really took that to heart because it's so true. And so we got really clear really early on, like, well, what are the things that we actually want? Because for us personally, like cars are not a big deal. I literally drive the same car I did as a first year med student, has a cassette tape deck in it, right? So like <laughs> we're a dual physician family and I drive around in like a 16 year old car with a cassette tape deck in it. Really? Yeah, and, and I don't care. Like it's not a big deal to me. You know, whereas like, other people, they love cars. And I think that's great. Buy an amazing car if that's where you get like your love and your pleasure and your enjoyment. But we got really clear about like, okay, what are those things that we actually do want? Not just what are all the things that you could possibly spend money on when you have money. And so for me, it really is the travel. And now that we have kids and when, when we could travel with the kids, it was really giving them those experiences as well. You know, and for my husband, he's got little things that make him happy. You know, like he likes having Sonos speakers and things that are all connected in the home that make no sense to me, but they make him happy. So that's fine. You know, so that's the kind of stuff. Find the things, yeah, find the things that bring you joy, right? Yes. Love that. And you know what? I used to, I actually started my first podcast I ever started listening to is Paula Pant. You can, and she always says, you can afford anything, but not everything. Yeah. You find the anything that sparks joy that speaks to you, right? And then and then be intentional about it. You, know, you mentioned um, you mentioned also like trust. You trust your husband, and people are often like, "Well, how 
you know, how can you trust anybody, not, not even just in a relationship, but like, say you decide to make an investment with somebody. I mean, how do you know who to trust? I think, you know, to trust because you two, your goals are aligned, right? You have the same goals at the end of the day. And the other thing you mentioned was your in- international travel trips that you do solo, either with your friends or with your mom once a year. Some mothers struggle with this because they feel the mom guilt, right? Right. Yeah. I'm like, okay, I can be the poster child for not feeling mom guilt. You know, I will tell you this. So, and, and this is something that, you know, yeah, I, it's so interesting to me because of course I see so many other moms and I see kind of what they're going through and it has not been my experience. And it's really fascinating for me. And I love talking about this. So I mentioned my husband is really the maternal one of the two of us. And it's true. Like he is so loving. And like, he was the one who was like obsessed with having kids before we had kids. And I was like, not so sure about this. You know, now that we have them, I love them, but he is totally the maternal one. And he honestly doesn't like spending time away from them. He has spent, I think, six nights away from my son in the four and a half years that we've had him and no time away from our daughter. And that's beautiful because that's what matters to him. I was very clear with him sort of knowing my, you know, my personality and and my spirit and what mattered to me before we had kids. I said, listen, I will do this, right? Like I'll have have kids with you. But I, I was really clear. I said, listen, you know, being who I am, which is someone who is kind of nomadic and who is really independent and who is introverted. I said, you know, I will do this thing that I need you to know, like, I'm going to be gone sometimes because I need this for just my personal happiness. Like you do not want me to be the mom who has to be home all the time. So I'll be a terrible mom and you're not going to like me as a wife. So like, let's just not even try that. And so he's totally on board with that. So for me, honestly, like I went to India for two weeks when my son was three months old and it was great for me. And I understand that a lot of moms that will not be a good choice for them. So of course they do not have to do that, right? Like that is not important, but what I want moms to know and something that actually took me kind of a lot of iterations and evolution to really get to is that what I believe now more than ever is that I cannot be the mom that I want to be, or I cannot be honestly as present and loving and in my best state with my children if I am miserable. And it doesn't matter kind of what form that misery takes. It's really understanding. And and I really believe this, that the more that I value myself and take care of myself, the more I'm an example to my children, honestly, to do the same thing. Having a son and a daughter has been very interesting for me because I really want to show my son, right, that women are total, normal, whole, fully capable people, just like men are. And I want my daughter to see that women can do anything they want to do, whether that is stay at home and be a mom and spend time with your children or homeschool them, whatever it is, or do something totally different. Right. And so for me, this piece of really honoring how important it is for me to be independent and go and travel by myself, I actually feel like brings the best part of me home to them. And so I personally don't feel guilty about that. And I have never really had to struggle with my own guilt about it because I knew, I think part of it is that I was older when I had children and my husband and I had been together, you know, for 10, 11 years before we had our child. So he knew who I was at that point. It wasn't really a surprise where I was like, we have kids and oh, guess what? I also want to disappear, you know, for a week or two at a time. And so, you know, we were, again, it comes back to that honesty and that trust that like he knew exactly who I was when we got married and we talked about it a lot before we had kids as well. And then when you do leave, like, does he have somebody helping him with the kids? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that when he leaves, I feel like I have nine people come and help me with the kids. And when I leave, he's like, nope, I got this. And he really does. Like he continues to work. You know, we, of course we have the nanny who's enormously helpful. So it's not like he's completely solo, um, but he really is like a one man show and he's phenomenal. I mean, like he's an incredible dad. And he does everything in the house like so well. So when I leave, I actually don't have to worry about anything at all because you you really couldn't like leave your kids in better hands. Like, like I said, I feel like a lot of times I'm the supporting cast member in terms of like (laughs) our parenting partnership. And so when I leave, I think that my kids are like, this is great. We've got dad all to ourselves. Oh my gosh, this is perfect because you know what? Like you say, when you leave, he runs the show and- Perfectly does everything. And then when, when he leaves, you have nine people come. Oh, I bring in the reinforcements. Yeah. And again, like I'm totally unapologetic about it. And that's okay. That's okay. I think some couples, um, or even me, even me, I'll speak about me. I will often compare, you know, like, well, if I should be, if I can do it, why can't he? Right. Yeah. 
but we're we're different and we have different needs and wants in his I mother differently than he fathers, right? So if he needs somebody to come cook and clean and bathe while he stimulates and enriches them in other ways, that that works. That's works. I mean, we are here to raise a family and be be happy. Yeah. And my perspective always was, you know, especially as I started taking, you know, sort of international trips that were more than like, you know, a day or two away from the family when, when he did, you know, once we had kids and he was at home with them, my perspective always was like, Hey, listen, you know how important it is for me, sort of like my sanity, (laughs) my development, and just my own, you know, growth and satisfaction to go and do the things that I love to do. My perspective was always like, tell me whatever I can do to help you make it as easy as possible on you while you're the one who's home. Like, let's arrange that. Let's make that happen. And and it just so happens that he doesn't really want that help, but it is vice versa. He knows that if he, you know, leaves town for a conference for a night or two and he's like, Hey, you want to have your mom fly out to help you, or you want to have some, you know, whatever it takes so that you don't lose your mind. He's like, that's great. Because then he knows when he's gone, he's not gonna have to deal with a million text messages from me. Like the children are melting down. I hate you. Come back. You know, it's like the, the happier and the more sort of functional each person is individually, it really does benefit the other one. And I think that's kind of what we've learned, you know, as we've grown, you know, sort of older and, and wiser with one another is that, yeah, we don't have to do things the exact same way. And that if, if the other person really feels loved and supported and whatever it is that they're doing, that that always ends up kind of coming back in a great way to the rest of the family. So like, why not work to give, you know, to, to make that as possible for your partner? I totally agree. A hundred percent. And as we wrap this up, Devin, what, are there any keys to, to, to your confidence? Oh, geez. Any keys to my confidence? Here's one thing I learned. And I think that this was something, um, that someone said to me recently that I think really impacted me and that I realized kind of articulated in a way I'd never thought about how I have gotten to this point in my life as it pertains to, you know, your question about just my confidence in making the decisions that I make. And I was in this conversation with a couple of different people. So I was just listening. So I will take no credit for any sort of wisdom or brilliance that's, that's in this, but it is something that I've really internalized. And there was one woman physician and she was talking about you know, really wanting to live life more on her terms. You know, there's all these things that we do that we kind of think we have to do and we're not quite in control of our lives yet. And she said, I just want to live life more on my own terms. And then this third person I was with said, you know, the truth is we are always living life on our own terms. The terms may just be that we're saying yes to everyone else and everything else to avoid the discomfort of saying no, we're saying what we really want. And I think for me, what has become key is truly the willingness to just be who I am and say, these are the things I want, especially when they aren't the norm or traditional, that it's okay for me to say, like, I'm a mom and I wanna go travel by myself when my son is three months old. And I don't think that makes me a terrible person. And so I really think, especially, you know, for women physicians, you know, whatever you're living right now, if you look at it as as you're living life exactly on your own terms, but that you're the creator of those terms and you can change them if you want to, but don't ever be afraid. Just be honest about what you want because there's nothing wrong with wanting what you want. Exactly. Being authentic, right? Yeah. Okay. And then where can people find you? Oh, sure. So people can find me. I live on the internet at physicianlifecoaching.com. You can also just email me directly at Devon, which is spelled D-E-V-O-N at physicianlifecoaching.com. Oh, perfect. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. This was so much fun talking to you. Yay. That was so fabulous. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much, Dr. Devin Gimbel, for coming on my show. Just so precious. Okay. So it is time for the three big take-home points from Devin. Number one, Your spouse is not an emotional vending machine. If you want to be happy, feel loved, appreciated, or supported, then figure out a way to feel those emotions on your own. You have the power. You are in control. Maybe you need to take a deeper dive into your thoughts to figure out why you are not feeling those things already and which thoughts you need to work on and how you can feel those feelings you truly want to feel. Because remember, my friends, you are in control. If your spouse wasn't there, you would be finding a way. Number two, when you have money, you have freedom. 
I love this one. I love when Devin mentioned this because I am a huge believer. You know, I'm a huge believer y'all that once you achieve financial freedom, your opportunities and options in life are limitless. Having money does not make you greedy, does not make you a bad person. You can use that money to do good in the world, okay? Having freedom, financial freedom, gives you the ability to dictate your own schedule, to dictate the time you spend in your life with the people who you value, the people you want to serve. You're able to give back, add value, and serve humanity on your own terms. Once you have that freedom, once you're not going to work because you have to. You're going to actually go to work because you want to. And you may go to work because you want to already, but is that every single day, every single minute? Mm, I don't know. So you will have that choice and you can change the culture of medicine because you will have autonomy. You will no longer be working for an institution, but you will be working for yourself and for your values. And you will have that voice and you will fight for what you believe in. Number three, next time you say, I just want to live life on my own terms, recognize that you already are. So own it. I live life on my own terms. And if you don't think that you are, if you think somebody else is giving you those terms, your spouse, your parents, your friends, the people you work for, that just means you're saying yes to someone else or something else. And you're saying no to yourself. Because whatever terms you're living on, they are your own terms. And that's it. Thank you so much, Devin, once again for coming on my show. I hope all of you out there listening walk away asking yourself, do I place expectations upon myself because I think others are expecting things of me? Do I treat my spouse like an emotional vending machine? What are things I spend money on that truly bring me joy? What do I need for myself to be the best and most loving spouse, parent, daughter, friend, and how am I living life on my own terms? Thank you so much for listening. I so much appreciate all of your reviews, your shares, your likes, your subscribes. (laughs) Love it. So please fly away, be positive, spread value and positivity into this world and reach out to me. I am still here on uh, medicinemarriageandmoney.com. That's my website. Or you can reach out to me at katemangona at medicinemarriageandmoney.com, my email. And feel free to reach out to me if you want to do a coaching session with me. I am here. I am here to serve. I am here for you guys. And I appreciate you so, so, so much. So thank you and much love to you and your spouse. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional, medical, or financial advice. The opinions provided on this podcast are those of myself or the invited guest alone. They do not represent the opinions of any particular institution. Always seek the advice of your physician or financial advisor with any questions you may have of a medical condition or financial plan. This is for your entertainment only.